0: welcome to you today. We're so glad that you're here. We want to welcome those worshiping with us online as well. We're always glad to have you. Now we've had some crowds here during the winter months because some of our people from up north, our snowbirds have been coming and then other people have been finding the church and coming this way. You know because of COVID we have had to cut back. We don't have as many crowds. We don't have as many services. We haven't needed them but it's always an encouraging sign when we see more folks and we're so glad to have you today. This is a great opportunity for us to be together and worship God. Now we're in this series called Starting Point. Starting Point is about this in in essence. Maybe you became a Christian when you were a child, or maybe you're an adult and you made that commitment, but there's a gap between what you were taught when you were a child and what you've experienced as an adult. There are questions that you have now that are not easily answered. You were taught that God loves all the little children, all the children of the world, and he does. But as adults, you see little children that are left out, marginalized, children that don't look very loved, do they? And so you just wrestle with that. What do I do with that, God? And so a lot of times, it's not that as adults, we just say, well, I'm just going to put my faith behind me. I'm not going to believe anymore. It's not a conscious thing we're trying to do. But things have just chipped away at it, and we've struggled with it. There's a difference in becoming a Christian as a child and becoming a Christian as an adult. And so that's what we want to talk about in this series. And it may be that you're here today and you're not a Christian, but you are an adult. And it would be an opportunity for you to make a commitment. The children are in here. It could be an opportunity for anybody of any age to make a commitment to Christ. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. Now, here's what I want you to see. All of us are creatures of habit. We all like to do certain things. We all like to have, you know, friends around us. We like to enjoy them. And so we're involved in life. And, and, you know, sometimes people get into a routine and they may go to a certain restaurant every week or a certain place on a certain day. And, And we're all people who do that sometimes. But here's what I want you to see. Sometimes God wants to do something new in our lives, sometimes He wants us to change. Look at the person next to you and say, God may want you to change. Go ahead and tell them that right now. Now, some of you enjoyed that way too much, okay? I don't want you to get off on a tangent there, and I don't need to do any counseling today. <clears throat> but what I want you to understand is that, you know, God does do new things. And he, I'm so grateful to serve a church. Two years ago, we made a decision. God was leading us. The Holy Spirit left us. We decided, hey, we're going to do things differently than we've done them before. It was not an easy decision. We worked and prayed and, and struggled through it for two and a half years. But we made that choice because we said, you know, Lord, if that's what you want, then that's what we're going to do. Somebody sang that old country music song, if you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. And so I'm so great to be a part of a church who does it. Now, I've been involved in other churches that did not really want to change. They, they really had a good heart. They were good people. I loved them. They loved me. But they didn't necessarily want to do anything differently, even if God was calling them to do it. They wouldn't They wouldn't know that. They wouldn't verbalize it. They wouldn't communicate it. But that's true. Now, there's a senior minister who's now a pastor emeritus. His name is john ed matheson he was a pastor at fraser memorial united methodist church in montgomery alabama for many years now he's retired but he's still the pastor emeritus there and he still has a ministry and he travels all over and speaks and he's very involved writes a lot of books and does a lot of things one of the little books he has is a devotional book and i read several devotional books every day along with the bible and i was reading this one of his devotionals yesterday and it just really jumped off the page and i wanted to just quote it it's just a little phrase that he said, and he was talking about change, and he said, one pastoral search committee. In other words, this was a, a church who was looking for a pastor, okay? And so they were trying to say to the pastor, this is the kind of person that we're looking for, and this is what they said. Basically, we're looking for an innovative pastor with a fresh vision who will inspire our church to remain exactly the same. Now you laugh about that, but I've served churches like that. They talked a good game. They they really thought they were doing what God was calling them to do, but really they weren't willing to change anything. We want those new people to come, you know. As long as we tell them what to do, everything'll be fine. That's what we want. We want the church to grow as long as no new folks come here. That that'd be a good thing, would it? And and you know it's it's really crazy. What people begin to think and believe in a church, because churches have personalities. Did you know that? Just like we have personalities, churches have personalities too. And so, you know, when you're talking about trying to be a church that reaches out, a church that wants to reach the unchurched, a church that wants to reach people far from God, it's an opportunity for us to say, well, first of all, I need to get my life in order spiritually and maybe as an adult, I I need to revisit my faith, and then also, it's a chance for us as a church to always evaluate and see. now, Lord, are we following you? Are we following the culture today? Because the Bible tells us what to believe and how to believe, and that's God's roadmap for life. If you and I go to a small group And we don't use the Bible, and we don't ever talk about Scripture, and we just all share our opinions. Do you know what that's called? That's called pooled ignorance. That's what that's called. That's true. And, you know, I've got opinions, but they don't necessarily mean anything. You know, God is the one that we follow. And so there was a guy named John, and he wrote several things in the Bible, and he was one that ended up talking in the New Testament. But then John, he talked about another John, and that was John the Baptist. Now, the reason this guy was called John the Baptist is because he did something that in recorded history had not been done until he came along. They called him John the Baptizer, John the Baptist, and the reason was because <clears throat> John felt led by God to go out and preach and teach people about God, and, and he did it in such a way that people just flocked to hear, him. it was amazing. God just anointed the messages. Prepared the hearts of the people. They received him, and boy, people just couldn't get enough of John the Baptist. And then he did something unusual. In those days, in the first century, you had to get training. You had to go through the religious authorities in order to be uh, to change religion. In other words, if you wanted to become Jewish, you couldn't just stand up and say, "Okay, I'm Jewish." You had to go to the right people, do the right things, and you you had to be an authority. You couldn't just be just anybody and just you know set up shop and start doing that. John the Baptist said, hey, listen, I'm not interested in that. God has called me to do something different, and so I'm going to do it. And he did it, and God just really blessed because he drew people to him. Now, here's what happened. People had to go from Jerusalem. That's, that was the major hub. And, you know, it wasn't like he set up shop in Jerusalem, okay? I mean, it'd be easy. All these people passing by all the time. I've been to Israel. We walked through the old city of Jerusalem. They would see us, and they would spot us a mile away. Here's what they would say to us when we walked through with our tour group. Rich American, rich American, come here. Come here, rich American. And they would say, come in here. We cheat you right. That's what they would tell us. Come back. They'd do anything to get your attention, to get you to stop and talk to them, okay? So it'd be real easy to drum up a crowd in that kind of a place, right? That's not where he was. He was way up at the Jordan River. The Jordan River runs through Israel, but back then, they were up at the headwaters, and that's where he was baptizing people. And so if you're going to leave Jerusalem, and you were going to go up way up there, almost out of the country of Israel, you had to get up before daylight And you had to walk all day long and you get there after dark at night and you had to go through Jericho. I mean, there's a reason that there's the parable about the Good Samaritan. Because the parable is telling about somebody who got robbed and beaten along the way to Jericho. If you ever walked or if you've been to Israel and you see the way that they used to go, there's roads now. But back in the day, they would walk along the streams and there were trees and big rocks. And and so you couldn't see around the next bend. And you could stand up on the hill today where the road is, and you could look down in there, and they call it a valley. They call it a wadi valley. That's what they're saying. And you could see. Well, you could see how easy it would be. There's a lot of growth and vegetation down there. Up here, it's arid and dry. It looks like the rocks, you know, the, the moon. That's all you can see up there. But down there where the water is, you know, there's a lot of growth and underbrush and stuff. And so, it was, boy, when he told that parable, everybody there immediately They said, boy, I know about that. I mean, going to Jericho in itself was a religious experience just getting there, right? And it took about an hour to walk there. But then they got to go north, way up here to Caesarea. And there, that's where they're going to go, up to the Jordan River. And so John the Baptist is up there. And it says in Mark 1, 5, uh, it says, The whole Judean countryside, all the people of Jerusalem, went out to him, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. Now, here's a bunch of folks who are saying, I am willing to change. I'm going to do things differently than I've always done them. I feel called by God to do something different, and I'm going to go out of my way to go and hear this guy and allow him to baptize me. He has no credentials. He has no authority, but God has sent him, and I'm going to go. And they just flocked. He was like a rock star. People just wanted to be close to John the Baptist, and that was what was going on in those days. And Mark got his information from Peter, and there were thousands of people that went to the Jordan River to be baptized. So then what happened was that the, the people who were the Pharisees, the religious authorities, heard about it. And they said, well, could that be the Messiah? Maybe we'd to go check him out ourselves. And so they went and they traveled there and they went to see what he was doing. And as they made their way there, all four gospels talk about John the Baptist. Josephus, who was a writer back in those days in 70 AD, he writes about John the Baptist. The prophet Muhammad talks about John the Baptist. What I want you to understand is John the Baptist was a real guy. He really lived. He really did do what the Bible said he did. And people wondered, is he the Messiah? And that's what they were asking. They went there and they asked him that question. Are you the Messiah? Are you the one we've been looking for? Should we wait for another? And then he said in John one twenty six, I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. And he goes on. And he says, if you think I draw a crowd, there's a guy getting ready to come after me that's going to blow me out of the water. He doesn't even compare what he's able to do. He goes on and he says, he is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This guy is so great, I can't even be his servant. And then he says this, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, here's what I want you to catch here. All the attention, all the spotlight, everybody is looking at John the Baptist. He is the guy. And what does he do? He points to Jesus. He says, hey, listen, it's not about me. It's about him. He's the special one. He's the anointed one. He's the son of God. He was sent by God. He's the special lamb without spot or blemish. Because in those days, they sacrificed animals. And that was to atone for sin. I was reading in my devotional this morning. And what I read today, I read through the Bible. It told me to read in Leviticus. It was all about sacrifice. Sacrifice this animal for this sin. Sacrifice this animal for this sin. And they did that all the time because they were sinners. Well, don't get too uppity. You are too, and I am too, okay? But the difference is that we don't have to do that anymore because Jesus died. He sacrificed his life. He was the perfect person. He never sinned. He paid for our sin. There's nothing we could do to earn our salvation, so he paid for our sins, and he did it once and for all. He didn't have to do it repeatedly every week. He didn't have to do it again. He has done it for you and me. And and in Greek, the lamb of God means the lamb that God has sent. God sent him, and he sent him for you, and he sent him for me. And sacrificing, that was a way of life for 1,500 years. They would sacrifice animals for atonement. And it was a tradition, and they just knew that was what they were supposed to do. And by sacrificing the animal, they're saying, I'm so thankful that I don't have to give my life but I can sacrifice one of my animals to atone for my sins. And so they were very faithful in doing that. But really in their heart of hearts, they probably knew that an animal is never really going to get the job done. We need something better than that. So John the baptizer says, look, the Lamb of God, and he points to Jesus. Now, I want you to think about that, and I want you to think about your life. And I want you to think about, is there ever a time in your life and mine when, when we get in a position of leadership, when we get in a place where we're trying to serve God and the enemy comes along and says, you know, you're pretty special. <laughs> you're doing a pretty good job. These people really admire you and they look up to you. You know, if I were you, I'd just bask in that a lot. And, and I'd just kind of make myself special. Now, let's just focus on who we are for a while, right? But he didn't do that. Immediately, he said, no, no, look the Lamb of God, Jesus. The whole reason we do everything we do in the Christian faith, it's not about us. We get a front row seat to watch God work. And when that happens, it's an opportunity for us to point other people to Jesus. If I be lifted up, I'll draw all people to me. And so we're constantly just lifting up Jesus. We're saying, hey, the reason I do what I do is for him. I love him. I want to serve him. And so what happens is that they get together for Passover. Now, Passover, they would celebrate what happened when Moses was in Egypt with the Israelites and the death angel was coming. And so the word got out to the Israelites. God told them, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sacrifice a lamb and you're going to have a meal tonight. I want you to take the blood. I want you to put it over the doorframe and down the sides. And when they come by your house, the death angel will pass over And your children will be spared. The the Egyptian children will die, but your children will live. And so that's what they did. For many years, I was a pastor in the United Methodist Church. We'd go to annual conference, and they would say, okay, you're either staying at the church you're serving, or you're moving to another church somewhere else. And so you would wait to see what was going to happen. They would let you know, am I going to stay? Am I going to go? Some people wanted to stay where they were. Some people wanted to go somewhere else. Sometimes they wanted to go to a specific place. And the Methodist preachers would get together and jokingly say, well, this year I celebrated Passover. I wanted to go to that church, but I got passed over, and I have to stay at this one this year. have to be a preacher to really appreciate that, but, but that's what we also sang the song, I Wonder As I Wander. That, that was another, because we were a slow group. We didn't know what we were doing, okay? But here's what I want you to see. Jesus comes along, and they've done this thing with Passover for all these years, and since they were little boys, the disciples, they know what it means to, to celebrate Passover. And and Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. And he says, I know that you've always been taught Passover, celebration, once a year, we always do it. But he said, from now on, when we have this meal together, it's going to be totally different. Because from now on, it's going to be all about me. They said, what? You mean what we've done forever, for years, all of our lives and, and the people before us and generations We've always done this. This is, this is something holy and significant to us. And now it's going to be all about you. How's that going to work? He said, I'm going to be the lamb who is going to be slain. I'm going to be the one who's going to die. It's my body, my blood, and that's going to forgive you of your sins. And so from now on, when we do this, I want you to be thinking about me. It would be like me getting up here at Advent and saying, now as we lead up to Christmas and it's Advent, and what do we celebrate? We're always celebrating the birth of Jesus, the coming of Christ, right? What if I got up and said, this year for Advent, it's not going to be about Jesus going to be about my birthday, Joe. It's all about Joe. Every week we're going to get together, we're going to sing songs about Joe. It's going to be wonderful. You're going to love it. And you'd all say, I'm leaving. I'm not sticking. This guy's crazy. He's a, he's leading a cult here. And you know, if I ever do that, you yeah, have permission to leave. I'd be out of my mind, okay? But I'm not going to do that, okay? I'm not even going to become close to doing that. My birthday's in February, okay? I'm just saying. I'm just saying, and I want to make sure you know that because I want you to celebrate. This year in February, I'm going to be 75. See, nobody even noticed, did they? I'm going to be 65 this week, okay? But there, I look pretty good from my age now, don't I? Okay, well, there. So, so here's what Jesus said from now on. This bread's going to be my body. This blood's going to be my blood. And, and when you drink, and when you eat, you're going to celebrate me. And they had the, the, that supper that together, that last supper that night. And then they went out of that place and Jesus was arrested. And all those brave men, those courageous men who had been following him, all ran away because they were afraid. And he was beaten and he was crucified. And the gospel writers tell us an interesting detail. They say that when Jesus was crucified, crucifixion was a horrible way to die. It was drawn out. It was lengthy. It was brutal. And so what happened was that when you were on the cross, you had to use your feet to raise yourself up enough to take a breath, but you couldn't stay up there because you couldn't hold yourself up that long and then you had to let yourself down. When you got worn out, what happened was that you would die of suffocation. You couldn't breathe. And so when they came to Jesus on the cross, They were going to break his legs because that's what they used to do because then people couldn't raise themselves up and they would suffocate and die. But when they got to him, he was already dead. And the reason was is because of the brutal beating that he had had. He had been scourged and beaten and he had had the crown of thorns on his head. And so he bled to death. He still went through all the suffering and pain, but he bled to death. And years after the crucifixion, Paul came along and he began persecuting Christians. And he was a Jew, and he said that we're going to stamp out Christianity. And he killed them, and he tortured them, and he he, he was trying to do away with them. And he almost succeeded until he met the resident Savior. As he's walking on the road to Damascus, God speaks to him. And it's a Damascus Road experience. And he's blinded. And he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I'm Jesus, who you've been persecuting. And he had an encounter with Christ. And now this guy who was a zealot to wipe out all Christians, he changes completely. He does a 180, he turns around, and now he's a zealot to draw people to Christ. And when people heard him speak after that, they were shocked. Wasn't this the guy that was killing Christians? And now he's advocating Christianity. And in Colossians it says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken away, nailing it to the cross. In other words, he's proclaiming Jesus is the one who can forgive sins. I said, wait a minute, Paul, that's not what you've been saying. He said, well, I've had a change of heart. Things are different now, see, there's nothing we can do because if if we could do something, if we could all just be good and go to heaven, we would, wouldn't we? But we can't be good because we're human and we sin and we make mistakes and we have to be forgiven. And so we turn to God, and it's through grace that we're saved. And once we receive the grace, God plants in our heart a desire to obey Him and please Him, and with God's help then we're able to do that, something we could not do on our own. Yes, we'll still fail, but we don't have to quit. And we all think, we play this little tape in our minds all the time. So many of us do this. And here's what we tell ourselves, or here's what we listen to. You're not good enough. You're guilty. I know what you did. I know about your past. I know about the sin in your life. There's no way God could forgive you. He might forgive other people, but not you. And you know what that is? That comes from the pit. And that's the enemy, because the enemy is an accuser. But Jesus is a Savior. And Jesus says, you know what? When I look at you, I see the righteousness of me, if you're a Christian. When God sees you, he sees the righteousness of Jesus He wants you to live delivered. He wants you to live free. Don't listen to the enemy. Jesus said, I didn't come to condemn you. I came to save you. And aren't we glad he did because we all need a savior. And that's what he's done for you and me. And he's the one person who stepped up and said, I am the solution to the sin problem." In all other religions, it says, well, you got to do this and you got to do this and you got to do this and you got to do this. Jesus said, no, I'm the solution alone. It's in me. And every time that you think about your past, your failures, your condemnation, and your guilt, I, I want you to just have a new mental memorial to your past and say, that's not true because God has wiped it all away. It'll make a difference in how you see yourself and your relationship to God, but it'll also make a difference in how you see other people and how you reach out to other people and minister to them. From now on, when you think about your past, I want you to think about forgiveness and grace and love because that's what I brought, Jesus said. And if you were to ask Paul today, what can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus and so Jesus died, he died for you, and he died for me, and he doesn't condemn us, and he wants to forgive us, and all we have to do is accept it. Earlier in this series, we talked about Abraham, and we talked about Abraham making a decision, and here's Abraham's decision. Abraham, I want you to leave where you are, and I want you to go to a new place, and I'm not even going to tell you where it is. I just want you to go somewhere new, okay? And someday I'm going to make a descendants, there are going to be more of your descendants than there are stars in the sky. Count them if you can. You can't do it. And he's an old man. He doesn't have any kids. And his wife Sarah's an old woman. And he's still saying, I'm going to do it. And what do you have to do? Trust. you got to trust me. Well, you talk about change. This is all I've ever known. This is the only place I've ever lived. This is where my extended family is. This is where my friends are. This is all I'm familiar with. And now I'm going someplace I don't even know where I'm going. But God called me to do it, so I'm going to trust. He says, trust me and watch what I do in your life. Not only does he look at you and me and say, point to Jesus, point to Jesus, point to Jesus, but he says, when you step out on trust, other people are watching you and they see your example and they see the life that you're living and they see your faith. Yesterday, we had a funeral for a member of the church. He would have been 75 years old on 2, 22 22. But he had cancer and he had diabetes, and he had complications and he, he goes to the earlier service, the, the traditional service. But you know he was a man of faith. And, and as I prepared with his wife, I learned a lot more about him. I learned that he worked in all kinds of places all over Alabama and even other places. He, he was a person that was successful everywhere he went. He was a person who could sing. I never knew that because when he moved here and joined the church, he was sick. He sang. He was a person who was an athlete. He was the quarterback on the football team. He was the point guard on the basketball team. He was a shortstop on the baseball team. His son played all three of those positions. His grandson played all three of those positions. His grandson was the quarterback at Mosley this year when they almost had a perfect season in his senior year. Three people like that, grandfather, father, and son, all played the same position, all shared. So this is the guy's a renaissance man, but he had a witness. He had a real uh, touch a lot of people's lives. The mayor of Foley, Alabama, where he lived for a long time, came over and spoke yesterday and talked about him. And the point I'm trying to make is that he was a genuine Christian, and he had a lot of witnesses to that, and he had a lot of impact on people's lives. But his wife brought me a little thing from his devotional book. He read a lot of devotionals every day. And she brought me one, he would highlight stuff. And he highlighted this one little paragraph. And basically what it said was, and, and talk about change, this is radical change. You know, he was saying, you know, I'd like to stay here on, on the earth. and I, I got a wife and I got kids and grandkids. I'd like to be here with my friends. And he enjoyed life. I mean, he, he would lived it to the fullest. But if it's inevitable, And if I can only be here a limited time, then, Lord, I'm ready. He reaffirmed his baptism. He got his house in order, as Debbie was talking about. And he said, I'm ready to go. And he was. And he had a peace about it. And one of the last memories I have of it was I leaned over. He he was talking to me in church. He was in a wheelchair by this time. And he would talk to me when he would come to church. And he said, come down here. I want to hug your neck. He gave me a hug, and he told me, you know, I'm ready. I mean, there's a part of me that doesn't want to go, but but I know I've got to go, and, and I know where I'm going. And, and the whole devotional was about heaven. Now listen, if somebody can look at life and death, leaving this earth and going to heaven that way, you think you and I might be willing to change a little bit if God called us to do something today. Maybe we never have done it that way before. Maybe God's gonna do something new and you know what possible thing could he do to us he won't hurt us he loves us we're his children and so with an act of faith with trust and thanksgiving we just step out and say Lord I just thank you and so today if you're tired of carrying around guilt if you're tired of carrying around sin and doubt if you're tired of, of living your life in the past and you want to move forward you got to break away you got to be free then I just want to lead you today in a little prayer if you're convinced that Jesus died for you and that you can be saved and you've never done that before and it doesn't matter what age you are, you can do it today. And it's going to be real simple. And I'm just going to pray and you can just pray silently where you are and, and you can repeat after me. You might want to pray for somebody else that you know about and you're praying for their salvation. But I just want to ask you to do that as a way of saying, you know, Lord, I want you to change my life for the better. A prayer is just a way of expressing to God the faith that He's looking for in you and in me personally because He's made it available to the whole world. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I believe. I believe when Jesus died, He paid for my sins. I believe that He's the Savior of the world. I believe that nothing I do could ever pay for my sin. I need you to pay for it. I believe that Jesus' death paid for my sin once and for all, so I'm placing all my trust in Christ's death on the cross and the full payment for my sin. Help me remember when guilt and shame and my past come crowding back to simply stop, And thank you for what's been done for me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you prayed that prayer today, I want you to tell at least one other person before you leave. And this is an opportunity for you to start again. This is a starting point for you to walk by faith and to live following Him. Today as we receive communion, it's an opportunity for you and me to talk to him about anything we want to talk about. Maybe you made that decision. You prayed that prayer. It's a time for you to continue to talk to him and just say, now, Lord, what do you want to do in my life? How do you want to change me? I want you to take out your communion that you were given and turn it with the wafer side up. I cannot emphasize this enough. <laughs> now, this Jesus was in the, in the upper room with the disciples, and he said to them, He took the bread, he blessed it, and he said, take this and eat. This is my body given for you. So now you can take it, and you can open it, and you can receive it. And as you're doing that, here's what I want you to hear. There's an invitation for everybody here to do that, and it's a chance right now for you to confess your sins. So as you're taking that and receiving it, just confess your sins and say, Lord, I want to accept the invitation to receive your supper today. But also, I want to confess my sins because you teach me that you'll cast my sins as far as the east is from the west. And then thank him. Jesus, thank you that you died for me and you allowed me not only to have a great life and live with you and walk with you, but I can live with you forever in heaven and all Christians I know. I just celebrate that. And then go out this week because you've been here and you've been in his presence and it should make a difference. It's not just about me. It's not just about you, but it's about our influence It's about our witness to the world. Now take the cup with the juice. He said, this is my blood of the new covenant shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Open it up and drink it now. Today, Jesus has come again. He's been in this place. He's present with us. It's an opportunity for us to celebrate what he's done for us one more time, to remember and never forget, and then to apply that in such a way that we live our lives so that others might see him in us. Look, look, it's Jesus, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of me alone, of you alone, of the whole world. What a privilege and a blessing. And then maybe... You might just say, now, Lord, what is it that you're saying to me today that you want to see change? What is it in my life that you want to remove in order to replace? What is it in me that you want to see happen as you mold me into the person that you want me to be? And, Lord, if you'll you'll just show me, I'll surrender. And I'll do it. And even though it means change, I will embrace it because you have asked me to do it. As you come today, as you take communion, if you want, you can just come up here as we sing the last song and you can put money in these baskets and that goes to the We Care Ministry, our food pantry. It's total volunteers and that'll help people in the community in need. And Jesus said, the poor you will always have with you, but I won't always be here. And so that's because you and I who have can share with those who don't. And maybe that's the way he designed it. You think? We teach our children that and our grandchildren. So I want to thank you for the $70,000 plus that you do every year. It's not even in the budget. Sometimes you bring food. Sometimes you write a check. Sometimes you bring money. Whatever you do to help with the food pantry and the We Care Ministry because we really do care, don't we? And then as you leave today, there are baskets where you can give. And that's your tithe and, and offering. Above your tithe and your gifts and offerings, this is something you do special once a month for the We Care ministry. And then the other baskets at the door, excuse me, at the door, are a chance for you to then give your tithe and, and God's gifts there. And so we celebrate that together. And all God's children said.